Hi friends, this is Joel. Thanks for joining me with this episode of the Mystery Bible On podcast, where we have fun with strange topics from a biblical perspective. Now, as a little bit of a disclaimer to this first episode, I think it's important that we keep in mind that not everybody is at the same place in this journey. Some of you are very familiar with some of the more fringe biblical topics and some of the more uh, challenging portions of of, of esoterra and of paranormal. And many of you might have very little experience with that, and that's fine. We want to accommodate everybody. So if you're listening to this episode and you're hearing things where you're saying, oh, I want Joel to ex- expand commentary on that or really go down that rabbit hole or, hey, I know there's more that you can say there, that's probably true. And God willing, we'll get to all of those topics. But I want to start off with foundational, important observations that get everybody on the same page and bring everybody to at least a somewhat similar concept of what the scriptural narrative has to offer. I had mentioned in the introduction, if you listen to that uh, short episode at the beginning, that I wanted to take some of these early episodes just to, um, to explore some books and some materials that I think are really helpful. And we may bring in some guest hosts to bring their thoughts in as well, and I look forward to doing that. One of the books I wanted to start with is a book called Earth's Earliest Ages by George H. Pember. This is a very interesting book, first of all, because a lot of people don't know anything about it, but it, it's, uh, it, I find it very comforting because it shows that some of these strange ideas we are talking about are not new things that we came up on our own. And I say that because Earth's Earliest Ages was written in 1876. That was when Pember lived. Um, he was a English theologian and preacher, and he lived, I think, 1836 to about 1910. And that's interesting to think about because he was right at the intersection of the uh, rise of uh, the Darwinian concept because Origin of Species was published, when was that? That was 1859, so just about 15 years prior to when um, Earth's Earliest Ages was published. But the other strange thing that was going on at that same time and and in the same culture, especially in British culture, was this rise of really bizarre spirituality. And some of you may have heard of Aleister Crowley, and he was uh, 1875 to 1947. So it was a, um, and Crowley really capitalized on this emergence of, uh, of and, and he was a black magic occultist and was sometimes called the wickedest man in the world by the British press. But he uh, marked this growing trend of accelerating heightened spirituality at the same time that you have this trend of heightened rationality. And all this is going on in the context of the Industrial Revolution. So you got to think about the world from Pember's perspective is speeding up and accelerating into this new place of decay uh, while it's becoming increasingly sophisticated. So from a worldly perspective, there's a lot of reasons to be very optimistic. You have the Industrial Revolution. Everything is getting better, faster, cheaper, stronger. Uh, they're, They're eliminating diseases. Population is increasing. Um, and then you also have this, uh, increase in science and the, the, uh, the elevation of science, especially with the Darwinian concepts. And then on the other hand, you have this creeping increase of black magic occultism and this, these strange spiritual concepts and, and, um, you know, theosophy and Crowleyism were not the, the only ones going on at that time. 
So the secret societies were a big deal, and it was uh, well known that there was a strange undercurrent to all of this. So Pember writes this book called Earth's Earliest Ages, and he's making a couple of points. But first and foremost, what he's ultimately doing with the book is warning people and saying, look, the days of Noah are a lot like the days that we have now. Now, the reason that's interesting is because Ember wrote this in 1876, and everything that was true about what he was saying then is drastically more true about, about today, as, you know, as we record this in uh, September of 2022. So it's, I think it's, uh, if, if you agree with his premise, and I don't agree with every single thing he says in the book, but I think his, his general approach is, is quite profound. If you agree with his premise and the biblical points that he's making, then he's calling out a warning to uh, modern day people saying, the end is coming. And we know it's coming because it's marked by these uh, certain things. I think if I get back to, and I'm flipping through the book a little bit back and forth here while I speak, I, this is one where I actually have the paper copy on hand. Um, Pember lists seven causes of antediluvian, that means pre-Noahic flood, so antediluvian corruption. And he's saying, are they all present and accounted for today? So the seven causes he lists are one, a tendency to worship God as Elohim, that is merely the creator and the benefactor, and not as Jehovah, the covenant God of mercy, dealing with transgressors who are appointed to destruction and finding a ransom for them. That's a really interesting point. So this is his first mark of antediluvian corruption. So did the, did the people in the days of Noah acknowledge God? Well, yes, they almost certainly did. It was a major part of their culture. But were they acknowledging him as the creator or as their salvation? And their, did they have a love for him or did they have an obligation to him? And were they looking to him just to make their lives better? And Pember says that uh, that, that misuse of the name of God, that misapplication of religion is one of the causes of the antediluvian corruption. Now we have to ask ourselves, okay, do we see that today? Is that something that is, is true today? And I think when you look at a lot of, uh, you know, just broadly Western Christian culture, yes, God is acknowledged. Yes, Jesus is acknowledged. But is it as a salvation from our sins? Is he Jehovah, the covenant God of mercy, dealing with sinners and who are appointed to destruction and saving us from that based on his sacrifice? Or is he just God who, you know, where I can be hashtag blessed and um, and have what I need and and you know I live a good life and everything's great and and he provides for me and I'm so grateful for that and you know I, I don't want to have to follow too many rules or or uh, you know be too aware of of sin and I just want to be accepting of everything and everywhere and everyone all the time and we can all just you know hold hands and be happy happy love love well I I think that you'll find in the uh, in a lot of the church um, culture it's it's the latter, not the former. Um, and obviously not true of every church, but when you look at the prosperity gospel movement and how profound it is and how much that, that concept of Christ and that concept of God has seeped into the Western Christian culture, then I think Pember makes a pretty valid point. And if it was true in 1876, it's uh, even more true today. The second cause of antediluvian corruption that he lists he says, an undue prominence of the female sex and a disregard of the primal law of marriage. Now, when he describes as Pember's not um, anti-feminist, what he's, what he's trying to, to explain here is 
there's going to be a twisting of sexuality and gender and a, a um, confusion around marriage and a corruption of the concept of marriage to the point where it's disregarded and corrupted. Now, that was true and emerging in Pember's day, and I think everybody can acknowledge that it's absolutely even probably so much more true today that Pember probably couldn't even uh, uh, imagine what was coming and where we would be in terms of sexuality and, uh, and gender and the confusion around those things today. So the, and, and I, I do have a lot more to say on that front, but I'm trying to stick with Pember's ideas right now. So, but I think we'll come back to that more and more as we talk about Genesis and creation and what God really made when he made male and female and why it's such a big deal to the point where you have angels falling around that concept of, of what is female and how come mankind has a female counterpart whereas the angels don't seem to have that, at least not that we can find in scripture. So Pember is pointing out that part of the pre-Noahic or part of the days of Noah, the corruption that was happening there was a deliberate uh, corrupting of gender identity and marriage. He was, he was saying this is one of the things that went wrong in the days of Noah. And the reason is because you have these dark spiritual forces that hate that concept. They, they are jealous of it and they, uh, they want to destroy it for mankind and they want to take it for themselves. And that's going to be a recurring theme, friends. We're going to see that over and over as we look into some of these uh, darker spiritual areas. You're going to find that the, the idea of destroying uh, gender and marriage and destroying those kinds of identities is really, really important. And I, I'm not saying that from a political perspective at all. I, most of you who know me know I'm I, I'm not that interested in politics. I'm very, very interested in what's happening when it comes to our spirits and our uh, our souls. Um, and the enemy also seems very interested in those things when it comes to our spirit and our soul. Then the the gender and sexes and marriage are a big part of that. So the third thing that Pember says is a mark of the pre-Noahic, uh, the days of Noah uh, destruction, you know, a, a mark of, of the fallenness of those days. Number three, he says, a rapid progress in the mechanical arts and the consequent invention of many devices whereby the hardships of the curse were mitigated and life was rendered more easy and indulgent. Also a proficiency in the fine arts, which captivated the minds of men and helped to induce an entire oblivion of God. I, there's, he's, he writes in a really um, uh, beautiful way. I mean, you don't see a lot of writers today writing with the kind of, of language that he uses. But uh, So this, this thing that he's explaining as, as a mark of antediluvian corruption is an explosion of technology so that life gets easy and indulgent and so that uh, people are distracted and have less and less need for God. Uh, obviously, he was in that Industrial Revolution time frame, and he was starting to see that. And gosh, if it was uh, true then, it's even more true now. There's a, and I, I believe this comes from spiritual sources, as as Pember did as well. That there's a almost a, um, a a frantic effort on behalf of broader secular society to make sure that you're distracted all the time. We have the finest minds of of our civilization are largely put to work trying to get your attention 
and get the little dopamine drips and keep you paying attention to notifications or to uh, show narratives or to fictional narratives, anything but really contemplating who you are before God and what we should be doing about our souls and where our um, allegiance of our souls should be. It's, um, it's, it's a trick and, and we, it's very easy to fall into. And I think today it's uh, uh, exponentially more true even than it was in uh, Pember's day. The fourth thing that Pember lists as a mark of the pre-Noahic corruption is an alliance between the nominal church and the world, which speedily resulted in a complete amalgamation. Now, this one's a little bit, uh, a little bit less intuitive, but what he's saying is the church and the world become harder and harder to tell apart. Um, obviously, you know, Christ is always distinct from the world and true followers of Christ are distinct from the world, but he's talking about this this cultural religious concept just becomes more and more absorbed the world until it's really until you can be culturally a religion but really be no different from the broader secular world. Uh, the fifth thing he lists, and by the way, again, if it was true then, it's even more true now. The fifth thing he lists as a mark of uh, pre, uh, pre-flood corruption is a vast increase in population. Um, and scripture does mention that. It says, you know, as man began to populate and spread out and fill the earth, um, and he's saying that uh, that was a marker of those days was the population was exploding. Um, I don't know what the population was in 1876, but I know today in the news, literally in the last week or so, then it was uh, what we're seeing is we're just crossing the 8 billion mark in terms of global population. Is that a problem? Is it a spiritual problem? I don't know. I mean, you can read Pember for yourself and see what he has to say about it, but it is a, uh, it is a problem in terms of the sustainability and saying, okay, something's got to give here because the planet obviously can't just support an exponentially large population. There's a lot of theories about this, and we can go into other uh, interesting books and experts and people who've spent a lot of time on this. Um, I've heard people say that, uh, I've heard experts say that theoretically the planet should be able to sustainably support a 10 billion population. Some have said uh, 11 billion, nobody's saying 100 billion. And the, um, the, the, the point is there's, a, there's, a, a, there, there's a, a question mark in terms of what population is and how big it can really get. The uh, sixth thing that Pember lists as a marker of the pre-Noahic um, corruption is the rejection of the preaching of Enoch whose warnings thus became a saber of death unto the world and hardened men beyond recovery. Now, Enoch, what, if you know your Bible or know who Enoch was, um, he lived during uh, the days of Noah. He was an ancestor of Noah, but because the lifespans were very long, then there was a lot of overlap. And Enoch was uh, known at, to be speaking out against the corruption of the world and the things that were happening in the world. Um, some of you are familiar with the book of Enoch, and we'll, we'll discuss that later. That's uh, kind of its own interesting and separate topic. But Enoch was a righteous man, and Noah was also a righteous man, and they were preaching against this kind of corruption that was happening in the world, and they were being ignored. And what Pember says is that when preaching is repeatedly ignored, then the heart cont- hardens and calcifies against it, and it goes, the warnings fall not just first on, you know, nervously deaf ears and then on actively deaf ears. And then it turns into 
mockery. Essentially, the people who are being warned are saying, yeah, you know, you've been saying this a long time, nothing's happened. And then the flood came uh, and to their utter destruction. So what Pember's saying is uh, a, a mockery and an ignoring of the warnings against corruption are a marker of the uh, pre-flood world. And why is it so important that the pre-flood world is um, being carefully examined? Well, uh, Pember spends a lot of time on the fact that Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, so it will be before, his, before Jesus' second coming. So Pember's saying, look, we need to look to the pre-flood world as, uh, as, as a careful parallel to see what we should be paying attention to today. The seventh thing that he lists as a, uh, as a marker of the pre-flood corruption is the appearance upon earth of beings from the principality of the air and their unlawful intercourse with the human race. Now, uh, that's, for those of you who know, uh, that's the, you know, the, what's described in um, Genesis 6, where it says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took of them whomever they wanted as wives and they had offspring that were called the Nephilim. So Pember's saying this unlawful or this um, abominable intercourse between fallen spiritual beings and, 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 and these physical interactions between them and human beings are, were a profound marker of the days of Noah. Is that happening today? Well, it's interesting to, that's a, that's a conversation that we will certainly have, but we got to think about what Pember says, um, for, was it happening in 1876? For those of you who are familiar with, you know, the alien abduction phenomena and uh, some of those, that's, that was not really a widespread concept in 1876. It became, it was, a, you, arguably it was vaguely present at the time, but it didn't really become a broader cultural phenomena. For those of you who want to make that argument um, for what Pember's saying, it didn't become a broader cultural phenomena really until the 1930s, 40s, 50s is when we started to see it um, really rear its head. So what's, so what's Pember talking about? Well, he spends the entire second half of his book going into the, uh, the explosion of spirituality and occultism and the mystery schools and um, the, the black magic and the, and the sexual rights and things that were um, becoming more common in his day, even to the point where I mentioned earlier where Aleister Crowley you know, makes a, a big showing. And those things continued to increase. They absolutely did. As a really interesting data point for that spiritual uprising, it's interesting to note that Madame Lavatsky's Theosophist Society, which heavily influenced Crowley and many following spiritual uh, societies, started in 1875, which would have been right around the time that Pember was actually writing this book. Uh, some of you have, may have read a little bit about the, um, you know, the, the Babylon rituals and um, some of the openings and the portal openings that uh, these black magic occultists were trying to create. It's very interesting and a separate book if you want to read it. Uh, Strange Angel is an interesting book. It's about um, Jack Parsons. He was the guy who was kind of the father of modern American rocketry in the U.S. Um, and this was after um, Pember's writing. It was more during the height of Aleister Crowley. So you got to be thinking in the you know, 1930s up into the 40s, up into uh, World War II. Um, Jack Parsons was creating the science of rocketry in the U.S., 
but he was also a black magic occultist creating rich and having, you know, openly, you know, ritual sexual magic spells uh, and had a, uh, an entire um, Crowleyan society. And he lived in a house that was, that he financed so that people could participate in this open cult. It was shocking to read that and see how many of the most modern and forward thinking minds were openly engaged in this kind of stuff. Is there a correlation between um, black magic, uh, you know, satanic uh, worship? Is there a correlation between those things and knowledge of science, knowledge of art? Um, yeah, there is a correlation. There's a, it, and that's not to say that every good artist is satanic. That's not to say that every uh, that every you know brilliant person is you know getting their their wisdom from uh, dark places. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that there are trade-offs that are made uh, for certain people, and you even hear uh, popular musicians and artists sometimes say, "I made a deal. I sold my soul." Um, that's that's not uncommon to hear, and we take it like a joke. But what Pember, one of the points he's making is that's real, and I think when you look at uh, there, when you look at people like Jack Parsons, it, it does. There's some reality there. It, to him, it was absolutely not a joke. So those are the seven things that Pember says are marks of the uh, pre-flood world. And his argument is that we should pay very close attention to them because if they were true then, and they're true now, and Jesus says that that's our our template for knowing that the end is coming, then Pember's real. Uh, his real point in writing this book is to warn us, to say, guys, guys, pay attention. Something's happening. It's, it's here. And we're starting to look a lot like this. And my commentary on top of that is that what, if that was true in 1876, everything he's listing is exponentially more true now. And we'll, uh, part of what I want to talk about across the, you know, this entire podcast and all the episodes is just exploring those those ideas saying, how, how real is this? Is this really going on? And if, if it is, where is it going on? And what do we need to be aware of? What's in the shadows or in the dark that, uh, that we're not paying attention to? So more about this book, uh, and we may discuss it again. I may bring on uh, a guest host to discuss this book. It's a really interesting book. Um, one of the things that I think is really neat about it is Pember really knows his Bible, and he really encourages us to know the Bible. He spends a lot of time in Genesis and in the creation and breaks down the Hebrew and shows, shows things that, you know, that are easy to do with today's tools, but were very, very hard to do back then. You really had to know your stuff and have a lot of training to be able to map out these Hebrew concepts through Genesis. And some of the stuff he was saying was not widely known in the there, the schools don't, and especially at that time, weren't necessarily teaching that sons of God seeing the daughters of men meant uh, beings of non-human origin were having sexual relationships with human women. That was not a common teaching. It is a, what I believe is the correct interpretation of that passage, and really what the early church also believed was the correct interpretation of that passage. Um, it wasn't until Augustine who made it more, uh, more popular to say, no, 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 that's actually saying something else. And it's just talking about uh, righteous sons of Seth uh, mixing with unrighteous daughters of Cain. Well, that's a nice theory because it takes the, the, the woo-woo factor out of it, but it's not what the text says. It's not what the text says at all. And in fact, what you'll find as we go through these podcasts that 
pretty much every single ancient culture has a tradition that that there were beings of supernatural origin that had relationships with human women and it caused big problems in the world. The Bible is not alone in saying this. The um, I want to read a quote uh, from Pember. You can find it on the back jacket of the book, but this is kind of sums up what he's saying. This is a, a quote of his. The influences of the Spirit of God are even now in process of withdrawal as he prepares for that departure from earth, which will leave it open for the Nephilim, sevenfold worse than those who formerly dwelt in it, to enter and for a short season to work their will upon the human race. Then will all the Nephilim who are yet at liberty be among men and will quickly make them feel the meaning of that awful utterance, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Pretty dark and scary stuff. Now, I recognize there are great minds and great theologians who disagree or have all sorts of different opinions on, uh, are, is, are the Nephilim going to return? Are we going to see you know these supernatural creatures? Is God really going to withdraw his spirit at the end? And are Christians or believers in Christ, followers of Christ, even going to be around? Is there going to be a pre, a mid, or a, or a post uh, uh, rapture? So acknowledging all of that, I wanted you to be familiar with what the uh, English theologian George H. Pember had to say in 1876, and why it's uh, worthwhile to spend the time to read what he has to say and think about how the things that he uh, was observing in the 1870s apply to today. Is this a book that is worth having on your shelf? I think so. I, and, and not every book we talk about on this podcast is something that I will necessarily say, oh yes, you should have this on your shelf. I think Pember's um, work, first of all, it's a, it's a great um, theological exercise. He really puts the Bible together in profound ways. His explanation of a lot of the concepts in Genesis are really neat. He shows a lot of powerful parallels between uh, the first Adam and the second Adam, meaning uh, Adam the, as the first of mankind, and then Jesus Christ as the redeeming Adam. And he really traces that theme through scripture, which is a very biblical theme. Paul traces that theme as well. Um, and so it's, it's a very illuminating and enlightening book to, to read. And it's interesting to read something that comes from the 1870s, meaning that it's not just full of the same, the same people, the same names, the same you know, popular uh, theologians that you see today. You don't see the same people quoted all the time. Pember has to do a lot of this work very organically. So I think it's a helpful book for perspective. Um, one of the things you'll note, it was out of print for a long time. It wasn't reprinted until 2012, and it was actually uh, Tom Horn that um, that wanted to make sure this got back in print, so we have him to thank for that, and I, I think Timothy Alberino was involved in that. I, I actually found this through Alberino some years ago. Um, we'll talk about Timothy Alberino later. It, one thing that, for like it or not, you know, Tom Horn is a, a little bit sensationalist uh, in terms of how he publishes things, so the, the cover of, of this book has uh, it has pyramids with a dinosaur flying and a very non-human profile, you know, some sort of alien profile on the cover. That's not because Pember's talking a lot about aliens, uh, but if you glance at this book, you're going to think it's about aliens. Um, but what Pember's really saying, and in, uh, in terms of Earth's earliest ages, 
and, and I didn't make this point earlier because I wanted to focus more on the, the practical application, but the, the application he's making about Earth's earliest ages is that there's a very, that something happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. So let's, let's turn to that a little bit because you can't really read this book without appreciating what Pember's trying to say there. What he's saying is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that. That's Genesis 1-1. And then it says, and now the earth was formless and empty or, or uh, vast and void or a uh, wasteland. Pember's saying that there was an entire spiritual fall that happened pre-Adam, that when Adam was formed, it was God essentially remaking the earth and placing Adam on it, God revitalizing the earth and placing mankind on it to rule and dwell over it. But there was a, an entire spiritual opposition already in place, and that there was a whole history to the earth that um, that didn't involve mankind before mankind was ever um, before it was you know reorganized and was put, and Adam was put back on it. That kind of theory tends to upset a lot of people. It also tends to delight a lot of people who are trying to reconcile Darwinian evolution timelines with biblical timelines. Say, oh, well, scientists say the earth is very, very old, so we'll go with that. But we can also go with the biblical timeline that somehow there was this vast amount of time before Adam was put on it. And um, that's not what Pember's trying to say. And for those of you who uh, have heard me speak on the subject before, that I don't. that's not the, what I'm trying to say. Um, I do agree with Pember that there was something that happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And it's because the state of the earth that we arrive at um, in Genesis 1-2, it's a, it's a wasteland, and the, uh, the Hebrew words are tohu abohu. And when you look at scripture and how those are used, they're used to describe punishment and desolation of, of a place in, as a result of spiritual corruption and depravity. So I think there's a very good case to be made, and Pember makes the case very well, that there was something that happened before Adam ever showed up. One of the things I also really like about Pember is he points out how inadequately English translations, even good English translations, this is still true today, and by the way, I'm not mocking English translations. They're, they're excellent, and um, I have a lot of respect for the people who do the work. But because we have these cultural expectations of what we think the Bible should say, then sometimes the English translations are quite inadequate in the words that they use to describe or how they translate what the Hebrew was really saying. Um, and Pember goes into a lot of detail on some of these where he's saying, look, the Hebrew is describing something that the English really isn't capturing. And that takes a lot of legwork to do. So I think his respect for the Hebrew and his willingness to um, to do the work to try and understand what might what what a more powerful or potent or thorough translation might be, I think it's a very respectable work, and I think it's very eye-opening. Um, I like to uh, point out that there's you know some of you have heard me say stuff like this before that there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that we we don't really know how to translate it, and so we tend to put the least sensational. Um, thing with which I think is safe, but we wind up with safe translations of passages that really, when you take a step back and look at how other cultures um, treated these similar translations, it's not safe. It, here's an example of that. When you look at the uh, the serpents that uh, 
that punished God's people in the wilderness, in the book of Numbers, we translate it just as snakes, poisonous snakes, or even fiery serpents. But the actual cultural understanding of what those words were saying is something far more bizarre and far more terrifying than what we would just think of, oh, there were a bunch of poisonous snakes around. Um, and I, so Pember's the kind of guy who points that stuff out and, and, uh, and really uh, explains that there's a lot more to the Hebrew language in some cases than our uh, you know, more conservative English translations really capture. So no, don't need to belabor that point anymore. So is this a good book to have on your shelf? Yeah, if you, if you can get past the, uh, the bizarre cover and the fact that it's going to give some people's eyebrows a workout if they see you reading it in public because the, the cover is very prov provocative, um, the ideas in it are profound. Pember is very scripturally oriented. Um, it's, it, I think it's worth reading, especially his explanation of uh, creation and the fall and Adam and Eve and what that really was and what was going on with the fall of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. I think, uh, I think he gives a very thoughtful approach to those things. The second half of the book, where he goes into um, you know, different spiritual movements and what they mean in his time, they, you may find that more or less relevant. I haven't spent as much time there. I was really much more focused on the Genesis portions of what he was saying. Um, I, think, I think they're relevant and they're helpful, but if you were only going to read one half of the book, then the first half that, uh, that focuses on Genesis is, uh, is very profound, especially if you've never really examined Genesis in, uh, in close examination before. So that's uh, a general overview. I certainly have not done uh, Mr. Pember full justice here. Um, it's been a little while since I read the book in detail, and I have a lot of markings and dog-eared pages in it, and there's a lot of um, interesting stuff. And obviously it's a little bit dated, but I think it's almost refreshing that it's a little bit dated. I kind of enjoyed that slightly dated perspective being, you know, having the fact that it's from, you know, over 130 years ago. Um, so I, I, I do recommend it and I don't recommend every book that I read. I think it is a helpful book uh, uh, to, to the, uh, you know, to the Christian library, especially if you're going to examine Genesis in detail. We may revisit this book um, because it's a thick book. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, over 400 pages thick and has a very detailed appendix with a lot of scripture references. So we absolutely may revisit it. I may bring other people on to share some of their thoughts about it, but I thought it would be a, a fun place to start just so you get a flavor of the kinds of conversations we can have and the kinds of things we can bring up. Uh, we'll get into all kinds of topics besides this. We're not going to spend all of our time just on Genesis and the Nephilim, but you're going to find that a lot of the weird stuff in the world is going to come back to Genesis and the Nephilim, and Pember's treatment of it is a good place to start. That's what I have for you guys today. I really appreciate you all listening, and I hope that you learned something and had some thoughts provoked by uh, examining what Pember had to say. I really look forward to continuing the conversation, and I am excited to see where this takes us. God bless you guys. Take care.